from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th and G, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. I'm your host, C.R. Wooters. This episode, I get the chance to chat with my pal, Chris Padilla. He runs IBM's Global Government Affairs Shop. We talk trade, innovation, and what it's like to run government affairs for Big Blue. Okay, let's rock and roll. Here's Chris Padilla. Chris Padilla, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks for having me. So I want to start with a little bit of nuts and bolts, and then we'll get into some big ideas. Um, so you're the VP of Government and Regulatory Affairs at IBM. You've had a long career. How'd you? Where'd you grow up, and how'd you find your way into the world of public policy? Uh, I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, grew up there and uh, then moved when I was about uh, eight or nine to New Jersey and went to high school there. Um, wound up coming to college in the D.C. area, went to Johns Hopkins uh, in Baltimore and then in D.C., where I studied international economics, became interested in trade policy, and um, that was how I wound up in the Washington world. I, uh, <laughs> the long road from Kansas to Washington. It's a long, uh, from Missouri. Uh, Missouri, uh, sorry, uh, excuse yes, me. Kansas City people. They're it's, very um, particular about this, Which right? side of the river? Yes, right? exactly. Uh, we feel like we're from the right side. But, uh, <laughs> I was always drawn to government and politics, and um, international trade was something interesting to me. I thought about joining the Foreign Service, uh, doing a couple other things, um, wound up getting a job at AT&T. Uh, doing international sales and marketing, and eventually found my way to Washington in the AT&T Washington office. That was um, now 27 years ago. You just dated yourself, so. You Sorry. <laughs> okay, so everybody knows IBM, but give me a sense of the size and scope of the company. I mean, it's it's big blue for a reason, right? It is. The company is um, now um, in the revenue range of about uh, $80 billion a year. Um, it's... Uh, about 385,000 people worldwide. Um, the company does business in 170 places around the world. It's a reason that it's called international business machines. And um, that was one of the things that drew me to the company um, because it really is a company with a global footprint, a company that believes in open markets uh, for goods and people and ideas and capital to move across borders. It, it built a business model on an open global world. And that's what I had always worked for when I was in government. It's what I personally believe in. Um, and so it was a great fit for me when, uh, when I had the opportunity to join IBM about eight years ago. And how big is IBM's footprint in D.C.? Here in D.C., um, we're about 25 people um, who do government affairs advocacy. Uh, I have another... 15 or so folks who do regulatory compliance work based here in D.C., um, things like export-import compliance. Um, by far, though, the majority of my team is outside the United States, um, about uh, 65 to 70 people in 39 countries now around the world. Wow. So a small footprint. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of one-person operations in some countries, but um, 
it, it reflects the global interests of the company. Sure. Hey, I have an interesting question for you, and well, maybe it's just interesting for me. Um, IBM somewhat uniquely does not have a political pack. I just wondered what the thought process behind that was, and if we were to you know, pick you up in a helicopter and drop you into another company, would you stick with that, or what's the philosophy behind it? Well, the reason IBM doesn't have a pack is partly historical. Um, the founder of the company, the founding chairman, Tom Watson Sr., um, was actually uh, very politically active. He, he, was, um, he was a Democrat, which was unusual at the time. He was a New Deal Democrat. He, he supported Franklin Roosevelt, unlike many business leaders at the time. But he believed strongly uh, that you should engage in public policy based on substance, not based on contributions. Um, the other factor was, given how international the company was, they didn't want to get in the business of giving money to politicians in one country and then being you know, faced with the question of, well, will you do it in, uh, mm -hmm. in Brazil or Turkey or some other place? So it started as a, as a founding tradition, and it's, it's been maintained through the years. I would say that in the, in the time that I've been at IBM, I can't say that there's an issue where we have not been able to get something done because we haven't had a pack. Right. Um, but we have to make up for it in other ways. And one of the things we do is we have a very active grassroots program. Mm -hmm. So we have people in almost every state of the union, uh, and we have senior executives appointed in each of those states whose job it is to do grassroots advocacy. So they actually have requirements to meet with the mayor, meet with the governor, meet with the members of Congress when they're in the home district, and we measure how often they do it. Um, so that, that, that helps. Um, and I have found grassroots advocacy, um, combined with, with other kinds of work in Washington, um, hasn't made it necessary to have a PAC. It's interesting, and and um, and I only ask that just because I think you know other people do, and I th I think it's an interesting perspective for folks as we think about how we deal in, uh, with Washington folks. All right, so that's kind of a little more nuts and bolts. Now let's dive into some bigger stuff. So when folks think about tech, um, I think a lot of people, you know, especially under a certain age, think about apps and internet stuff. From a public policy standpoint, how is a mature company like IBM different? from the app guys, and also like where does it overlap? Um, because I suspect it's a little bit of both. It is. Um, you know, a number of years ago, Intel ran a campaign called Intel Inside to remind people that there is a chip inside that machine you're using and they make it. Um, you could say the same in many ways about IBM. Um, every time you go to an ATM machine, 90% um, of the world's banking transactions are handled on IBM mainframes or managed by IBM services. Um, the same is true with travel reservations. The same is true for many government transactions. So if I get bumped off a flight, should I call you? And uh, well, call the airline first. Okay, okay. But, uh, okay. They'll, they'll, they'll probably pull up uh, your reservation um, off of an IBM system. Sure. And uh, so that's a big part of what we do. It's part of what we've always done. And we've mostly been a B2B company. So our clients are our banks, um, big retailers, uh, governments, a big client. There has not been as much of a consumer-facing part of IBM since we sold the PC business back in 2005, I want to say. Um, but that's changing. So every time you check the weather on your iPhone, uh, chances are you're using the Weather Channel app 
the, the iPhone default weather app is powered by the Weather Channel, which is now an IBM company. Um, we we now um, are getting very much into the business of healthcare, health records management, um, uh, those kinds of things. So more and more consumers will will see IBM in, instead of just businesses. Okay, cool. Um, and I have heard uh, your CEO Ginny Rometty talk about something called new collar jobs. Yep. What's a new collar job? Um, and you know, what are we doing to create these? And give us a little background of the thought process there. So a new collar job is a job in tech. Um, at IBM, it's probably in a software or service delivery center somewhere in the middle of the country. We have these in Dubuque, Iowa, Columbia, Missouri, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, East Lansing, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio. These jobs do not necessarily require a four-year college degree. Uh, you can get hired into these jobs, in some cases out of high school, in some cases with a two-year associate's degree. You just have to have the right skills. You have to have web design. You have to have uh, server management knowledge. You have to have the right skill set. And, and in many cases, we'll train people uh, to get those. So what we said is, well, those aren't really white-collar jobs. They're also not really blue-collar jobs. Uh, we call them new-collar jobs. And the good news is, those jobs are growing, uh, and then not just in IBM, but in, com in companies all over the place, where the key is not so much the letters after your name or the degree hanging on your wall, but the skills that you have. And I mean, at any given moment, IBM has two to three thousand open jobs in the U.S. that we can't fill because we can't find people with the right skills. So we've made a campaign out of this, talking about new collar jobs. How do you get people to have these skills? Well, you train them, and one way we did it, interestingly, was um, our former CEO, Sam Palmisano, was, uh, he was at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament in New York, which is about this time of year, <laughs> on Labor Day. He was talking to um, Mike Bloomberg, who was then the mayor of New York, uh, and Joel Klein, who was then the chancellor of schools, and they were talking about this problem, we can't get the skills, and, and the three of them. I don't know who it was who came up first with the idea, said, let's build a school. And so we built a, a public school in Brooklyn that goes from grade nine to grade 14. Huh. So you go the traditional four years of high school plus two years. When you get out, you've got a high school degree, a associate's degree from the City University of New York, and skills that IBM trained you on and first shot of, of a job at IBM. And we've hired some of these kids, and i got to tell you, it is amazing what they do. Um, I mean, we got kids out of these schools who are 19, 20 years old um, with the most amazing, not just technical skills, but life skills. Sure, yeah. And so, you know, our feeling is, look, this is, this is in large measure, I think, what the 2016 election was all about, right? Mm -hmm. What do jobs look like for people who, who uh, maybe used to work on an assembly line yep. uh, or in a textile mill? Mm -hmm. Those jobs, uh, in many cases, have been automated or they've gone away and they're not mm -hmm. coming back. What do those folks do? Well, here's a part of the answer to that. 
Yeah, the question. president's talked about apprenticeships and some other stuff, yes, and this kind of yes. falls a little bit in that category. I also know that like there's a lot of community colleges that are trying to adapt, yep. uh, you know, what their uh, curriculum is based on these kinds of things. So it seems like this is the type of thing that while you all are doing it, it's also probably kind of can go beyond. Well, lots IBM. of people are doing it, yeah. um, and there's no pride of, pride of ownership here. I mean, um, you know, Microsoft, which is a big competitor of ours, is focusing on um, computer science classes in high school. Uh, which we agree with and we support them on that. Um, they've been supportive of this concept of apprenticeships and and these P-TECH schools is what we call these grade 9 to 14 schools. The point is the business community and I think Republicans and Democrats uh, all agree we've got a skills gap in this country and um, there are jobs but there aren't people to fill them and, and getting folks those skills is is really critical. It's It's important for business, it's also important frankly, for the future of the country um, so that we, you know, don't have so many divisions based on, um, you know, people worrying about their economic future. Yeah, I think that's right. And we've heard that from others, both on this podcast and, and, and other clients I have. So now I'm going to take a turn to something that... You have other clients. <laughs> no, 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 actually just podcast all the time. I'm that's leaving. The, uh, so now we're going to take a turn to something that's a little bit more in your expert, you know, kind of real wheelhouse. Um, President Trump has kicked off renegotiation of NAFTA. Yep. Um, as the process rolls on, like, what is, what's IBM keeping its eye on specifically for NAFTA? And then also just trade in general, um, you know, kind of what, what are the things that you're watching out for or hoping for as that goes forward? Well, I'll tell you, um... What we hope for out of the NAFTA renegotiation is is somewhat on the parochial side. We'd like to see um, protections for digital trade included in the NAFTA. Uh, this means the free movement of data across borders and not requiring data to be stored locally in a country um, as a condition of access. And, and that's something that we support. It was in the TPP agreement that President Obama negotiated. Frankly, all three countries agreed to that language in TPP, they could they could almost lift and shift mm -hmm. um, with a different name. Don't call it TPP, but, mm -hmm. but the principle is, is there and I think the three countries would agree. Stepping back though, um, there's, a, there's a cognitive dissonance in these negotiations and you could see it in the first round where the Canadians and the Mexicans came in and said, we need to update this agreement, it's 25 years old, there's a lot of things we can do to make it better. Um, Ambassador Lighthizer came in and said, NAFTA's been a disaster, uh, it's failed for many, many Americans, and we need to change that. And so the question is, what's the basic goal of these talks? Is it to make trade more restrictive in North America, which appears to be what Ambassador Lighthizer was talking about, or is it to, to update with some new things like digital trade chapters? Um, I think that fundamental dissonance is going to become more evident as we get further and further into these negotiations. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, you know, if it's if it's updating, I suspect um, most folks, there's a lot of things that didn't even exist 25 years ago, right? I mean, right. Uh, cell phones were nothing, one them, <laughs> digital yeah. trade being another one, right, exactly. IBM's developed Watson, 
way early in the AI space. Um, some folks might remember Watson playing Jeopardy, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, 2011. Yeah, it feels like we're in a whole new world. It feels like like the whole universe is doing AI stuff. And I feel like you guys are probably, since you were there first, are either have a unique perspective or certainly a leader in this place. What's the future for AI and, you know, what's the future for Watson? Yeah. And I don't even know if I'm asking that question correctly. <laughs> well, I think um, you know, it's interesting. When, if you watched Watson play Jeopardy, um, it, they were doing the final round of Jeopardy. You know, Watson was playing Ken Jennings, who's this amazing genius, if you meet him. Um, and... Jennings knew he was going to lose because even though he might have the right answer, he didn't have enough money. Watson was ahead. And so he wrote on his final Jeopardy answer, I, for one, welcome our future computer overlord. <laughs> um, and everybody laughed. And, and, you know, but since then, I mean, if you, t if you talk to, you know, or if you listen to Elon Musk or Bill Gates, I mean, they're coming out with this very dystopian view that, you know, the future is dark and robots are going to take over the world and uh, no one's going to have a job so we all need universal basic income. I mean, we just reject that categorically as a company. Um, we think AI should stand for augmented intelligence, augmented human intelligence. You know, machines have always been an aid to human beings and we think that's what AI will be. Mm -hmm. um, machines like Watson, systems like Watson, mm -hmm. will help people to make better decisions. Um, take healthcare, for example. If you're a doctor, you can't possibly read all the medical journals and the latest research on every disease. Watson can and can interpret it. Uh, and so if you're a doctor trying to diagnose a, a patient, you can use Watson to help you make a decision, but you're not going to turn over, you're not going to, you know, go play golf and let Watson examine the patient and tell the patient what they have and what they need to do. Right. It's not going to happen. And so our vision and view is that people are getting really overwrought about AI. We see the potential. We're optimistic about it because we think it'll help people make better decisions. And you can think of areas like um, you know, financial markets or financial regulation for that matter. It's too much information. We're all flooded with information, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even keep up on your on your phone or your computer. If a machine can do that for you, think about how that unlocks the potential for creativity, for new ideas. Sure. Um, that's what I, AI, I think, is going to do, and that's what Watson's meant to do. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes because the, uh, the 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 overlords uh, statement I think is a little bit yeah. both a little bit funny and a little bit terrifying. Yeah, Terminator, everybody, yeah. you know, everybody, <laughs> autonomous weapons. Yeah. But I I think first of all that that's not what AI systems are likely to be able to do at any time in the near future, and um, and most of the leading companies that are working on this are very aware of the ethical issues and are acting very responsibly. I I think. You know, one of the benefits of being a 105-year-old company is you have the benefit of history. I went back and read a speech by another Watson, Tom Watson Jr. this time, who gave a speech in 1965 to the American Bankers Association, which was absolutely convinced that banks were going to be completely wiped out by automation and computers. Hmm. That, you know, because their world was tellers writing things in hand letters. Sure, okay? right, of course. Even, even in the 60s. 
Uh, and Watson said, you know, machines aren't going to replace banks. Uh, they're not going to replace people, but they're going to make banking more efficient. And he was right. So we say the same thing about Watson and AI. That's interesting. And the fact that you have the, you know, uh, we were talking earlier about the internet companies and stuff. You know, those, the, 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 oldest internet kids companies. kids on the block, I call them. Yeah, the oldest internet companies are 10 or 12 years old. You right. guys are talking about 100 years. It's a whole different deal. From a regulatory perspective, what can be done or what should be done in the AI space to either help move this along or make sure we don't kind of go go off the rails here? You know, I always think there's a bit of a, a, a gentle balance that governments tend to not be able to thread, but which is we do need some some rules to play by, but we don't really need rules that obstruct us from thinking about new and creative things. Um, any yeah, thoughts on that? I think it's too early to be talking about regulating AI, and and I think that generally from our discussions with governments, even in Europe, which tends to take a more precautionary approach to technology, I think there's a recognition that this this is a technology still in its infancy. Uh, and government is probably ill-equipped to regulate in this area. Um, I do think companies have a responsibility <clears throat> to say um, how their systems will be used. And the biggest area where this comes in is what's called transparency. If, if Watson tells a doctor, I think that this patient has stage four cancer, right? there's an obligation that Watson be transparent to the user about how it reached that conclusion. Okay. Okay. It shouldn't be a black box, right? Mm -hmm. There should be an audit trail. Okay. And the good news is Watson does this, right? When mm -hmm. it gives you a, a suggested diagnosis, it says, I have 70% confidence in this based on all these journal articles I read. And it mm -hmm. gives you the audit trail so that a human can kind of go back and check. It's a little bit like you know, you shouldn't have purely electronic voting machines, right? right. You should always have a paper record. Yep. You can use the machine to tabulate, mm -hmm. quickly count, but you need the paper record. The same is true for AI systems. You need that transparency. And I think that's the first area where if, if somebody tries to put on the market an AI system that truly is a black box, then government may raise its hand and say, hold on. We haven't seen that yet. Um, IBM certainly is committed to say, you know, we're, we've got a system that's very transparent. Um, and as long as that continues to be the case, I don't think government will have to step in. That makes sense. And I would guess, like on a functional level, if uh, Watson was looking at Joe Blow's website versus the, you know, whatever, right. Journal of American Medicine or something like that, that yep. would you would want to know that. <laughs> um, Definitely. Um, and, uh, probably isn't, isn't looking at Joe Blow's website, but you never know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think if it were a black that. box, you wouldn't be able to tell that. I guess that's that's, that's the point. That's the key. You yeah. need to know, and and that, you know, you need to know the confidence that you should place in the in the advice that the machine is giving you, mm -hmm. and um, we believe strongly in that, and that's the way we built Watson. Yeah. Okay, so while IBM's have been around for a long time, you guys have like tons of really smart guys that are looking way down the road. I'm guys and gals. Um, yep. So what are your smart guys and gals looking at that nobody's talking about yet um quantum, way down the road quantum computing okay what the hell is that quantum computer um so uh i won't try to explain quantum mechanics on this podcast because, <laughs> thank you uh, thank you i don't think i could and i that's definitely called, don't have the qualifications it's called it. knowing your host nice work um, but the to to describe it simply um 
computers as we know them basically are number crunchers. They crunch ones and zeros, okay? Now they do it in a very sophisticated way at extremely high speeds, but that's what they do. Quantum mechanics is based on the idea that there is no predictability and that random events happen. Um, and the ability to capture that in a quantum computer means that instead of having a computer program to do something, um, a computer can begin to think its way through a maze, for example. Hmm. Not by testing every single route, but by actually thinking it through. Um, and quantum computing, I think, is the one of the next big things. In addition to AI, if you asked the technologists at IBM, they would say AI, quantum computing, and probably blockchain, which is a a new way of, of doing transactions through an open ledger that anybody can see but nobody can change. And secured. And secured. Yeah. Um, those three things are sort of big bets that we've placed as a company. Okay, I got one last question for you, and this is a question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. So in Washington is uh, a place you meet folks for coffee when you're looking for advice or looking for a job or looking for uh, other stuff. And so my question for you is if you could grab coffee with anybody today, who would it be? And I'll preface this by we've gotten dead guys. We've gotten, you know, people in Washington. We've gotten non-real people. So uh, the floor is yours on that one. Well, there's lots of interesting folks in Washington that I'd love to, to chat with. Um, you know, one of the reasons I went into government and I served um, proudly um, in the Bush administration for six years was I wanted to see what it was like on the inside because I thought it would help me to know better and, and to do the kind of job I have now better. It certainly has. Um, I, I think it would be interesting to have you know coffee with almost anybody in the West Wing these days to um, understand um, what really is happening and whether the, the way that the press characterizes it is true or not. Um, one of the things I took away from my government experience is people on the outside of government tend to assume that there's a conspiracy behind every decision or that it was all carefully planned. And when in reality, um, the chaos theory was generally more accurate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are human beings placed in very difficult jobs, making very consequential decisions with imperfect information. And limited sleep. And limited sleep and very high pressure and right. a lot of attention. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, um, that's true. It's true for, it was true for the Obama White House. It's true for the Trump White House. And so when I read things sometimes in the press about, you know, everything is crazy in the West Wing, I take it with a little bit of a grain of salt because I've seen West Wings and um, both from the inside and the outside. And I think you have to give people the benefit of the doubt that they are working under great pressure and great strain and, and trying to make decisions. And there is a lot of internal disagreement that has to be worked through. Um, so that's one of the things that I think would be interesting to know more about, you know, what's really happening. All right. Chris Padilla, the big dog at IBM. Thanks for coming in here to Fortune. Thank you, Chief. CR. thank Chris Padilla for coming on the show. It's always fun talking to him. Thanks for listening. And always, you can reach out to me via email, wooters at mc-dc.com. We're on Twitter, 
at CRWooters. Keep those suggestions coming, and we'll see you next time at the intersection of business and policy, right here at 14th and G.